this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Rich Manders started iAutomation with his partner Wayne and built it up to $12 million in revenue before he decided it was time to get out. And when he got out, he sold it for eight times EBITDA. And I think you're going to like this episode because Rich shares some real secrets about, first of all, structuring a private equity sale. He sold the private equity and he describes in quite a lot of detail the deal structure and terms, how he held 25%, how he got his cash, the multiple. So lots of great nuggets here in a private equity deal. Uh, he also talks about the importance of solving a problem once and getting paid many times. Uh, he talks about making a partnership last the test of time over 20 years now with his partner, Wayne. He talks about some of the metrics you can expect in terms of number of companies you're going to need to pitch in order to ultimately consummate the sale of your business. And he talks about some of the joys and downsides of growing a business with other people's money. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Rich Manders. Rich Manders, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Nice to be here. Thank yeah. you. So tell us about this company, iAutomation. What did you guys do? Sure. So um, if you think about automation, it's, you picture machines, right? Things moving around. And we were experts at the art and science of making that motion a coordinated, high-precision dance. And so anybody who built machines, we would help them with all the, thing, all the moving parts inside that machine. So motors, controls, actuators, robotics, and then all of the supporting things that went around it, like software and sensors and touch screens and, and power distribution and all these things. So the easiest uh, description of a, a customer was someone who is an easy example is a company called Reveal Imaging. If you've been through any midsize airport in the United States, you put your bag into that machine and it scans your checked luggage in a small airport. Inside that machine, the way how good that machine runs is and works is a function of how precise the motion is, there's a big x-ray system that's spinning around the bag and a conveyor belt that's pushing the bag through. And our expertise was around providing all the mechanical components and control components so that that image was as high a quality as possible. And the company that built that machine could focus on the imaging and not on the mechanical motion system. And so that's what we did. It was kind of custom projects for each client? Not, well, kind of. but. What we did um, was we figured out how to make it so that it was we could solve a problem once and then get paid multiple times. That was really the underlying business model. And so we would only work with companies who built the same machine over and over again. We would help them. And then uh, each time they built a machine, we were shipping them a skid of parts. We would design in the parts that we sold. 
and into who, the machine. Who owned the IP on the designs of some of the stuff that the, you built? The, the customer did. So we would help them with it. And our uh, X factor for those who know the uh, Jim Collins work was that we wouldn't charge for the engineering. We would do the engineering for free, but our X factor was that we were designing in components that we had the exclusive franchise for in our territory. And so every time they built the machine, we just get ship the skid of parts over and over again. And so those reveal machines, there's probably a thousand of them in the field. So we solved the problem once, got paid a thousand times for solving that problem. Sounds like a great business. This is, I mean, I'm curious to know how you got into this business. So I'm an engineer by training. Okay. And uh, right out of college, my first job was a a company that automated the making of false teeth. And so I started working on machines that made false teeth. And it just kept parlaying into more and more interesting and more automation types projects. I've pretty much been in that field my whole career. As you look, I know that it was a, was it a 20 year run? How long did you have the business? I uh, started it in uh, 1997 or 98 was the actual uh, launch date, but we were working on it in 97. And uh, we just sold in January, the, the last part of the sale. Got it. And so and, that's about 20 years. Yeah. And we were talking a little bit you know, before we hit record here and, and that there was a, a fairly big, uh, you know, uh, recapitalization in 2007. Correct. And so, it, you know, as you think about that run between 1997 and 2007, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, were, was there kind of one or two inflection points, seminal moments where you think that, you know, that moment in time really shifted the business, pushed it forward? Yeah. Um, probably the biggest one was I joined EO and I started uh, learning uh, in a way, because I was an engineer who kind of stumbled on business versus uh, a business person who found an engineering company. And when I joined EO, I remember the very first uh, dinner I went to, somebody asked me, uh, Did, have you ever read the book, The E-Myth? And I was like, no. And they said, oh, you got to go get that book like right away. And so I got that book and I started reading it and I was like, oh my God, that's me. I've made every mistake that's in this book. <laughs> EO, for those who, who don't know, is called Entrepreneur's Organization. Right. And so that was the first kind of pivot was I started getting uh, gifts from peers of the learning they were doing and attending universities. And then I went to a program I'm pretty sure you went to also called Birthing a Giant. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And Endicott House. At, at the Endicott House. So mm-hmm. I'm in this program at Birthing a Giants. I think it's year two. This is like 2001, maybe. And Vern Harnish, who's the guy who was organizing it, brings up these four people in a panel who had sold their businesses and told their story of uh, many of the stories were really sad and bad, and many of the stories were really great. But I listened with great interest and said, wow, it, we could pull this off. We could sell the company. And so I spent a lot of time talking to those folks. It was the guy who built the um, APC, the power business and the guy who did skill path seminars and so on. Right. And I picked their brains and I started really learning about, you know, how this works, how, you know, how you could sell a company and how the valuation was going to be done. And so that really triggered in me that we could be onto something and that if I wanted to exit the business down the road, 
that I need I needed to start thinking about a bunch of things now that would increase the value of the business. And what were some of those? Uh, one was uh, that that whole idea of uh, solving a problem once and getting paid multiple times. Before we had gotten involved with that, we did a lot of project work where we would solve a problem once and then go find another problem to solve and then another one. The problem is every month you're starting out sales with zero and got to go find a bunch of problems to solve. And so this was changing it more into a subscription model and a very predictable subscription model. Um, looking at the processes and the things that we were doing and making sure that everything was clear. One of the things that was in the e-myth book was systematizing everything. So we made operating manuals for every department. We started doing training for our people on uh, how the business works so that they started thinking about all the pieces that they could make better in the thing. We did the Rockefeller habit stuff. So we did the quarterly meetings and the themes and uh, you know all of that stuff. Fantastic. And, and it, it sounds like it paid off because in 2007, you, you were acquired, were partially acquired. Maybe talk a little yeah. bit about that. So um, once we had this business model up and running, one of the challenges that we had was um, all of our personal assets were tied up in the business. And that made me nervous. Um, also, we felt that we were onto something, that we had a business model that um, could really scale bigger, but we had two problems. One, we had lack of capital to expand and we're nervous about the risk of uh, going further into uh, into that. And then second thing is we didn't really know how. We didn't know how to acquire people. We didn't know how to scale past. We had never, it, we were two engineers who built the business, not the other way around. And so we really lacked operational expertise and so Sitting through that session and listening to a couple of the people in, in the BOG session, I said, we can find somebody who will partner with us and help us scale this business to the next level. So we had brought the business to roughly about 12 million in revenue in 2007. And we knew that we could go much further, but we really wanted to use other people's money and also take a bunch of chips off the table at that point. So that was really our goal in 2007 when we started the process of exiting the business was really or, or looking for a financial partner to take a bunch of chips off really started in 2005 or six where i was doing a lot of research and figuring this out got it got it and, and who is the we you mentioned a, a partner oh yeah so i had a business partner wayne and actually my wife was also involved with the business and so uh it was truly we getting the getting this business up and off the off the ground and we were all in alignment about that we wanted to take those chips off the table and also uh, test our abilities to take it to a much bigger place. Got it. So so you decide to look for a financial investor, a recapitalization. Correct. Got it. Correct. And, and, and so was this a minority or a majority recapitalization? Um, majority. Majority. Although we were open to anything, really. We, were, we, we really didn't know what we were doing. And so... Um, the first thing we did was we went out and found uh, professionals that could help us. So we went out and got a great investment banker that we had uh, been referred to from multiple sources from EO and also a great attorney. And uh, we were able to get those two folks on our team 
And both of those involved a search process. So I interviewed a lot of investment bankers and uh, talked to references of people who work with them and picked one from that. And same thing with the attorneys. What were you looking for in an M&A advisor? Uh, the first one was that they could understand and articulate our business, which it was pretty complicated. I, I've gotten good at explaining it now, but it's hard to an investor to understand all the 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 beautiful things about the business and and why it was so uh, attractive. And so we needed someone who could really understand. It just so happened that the the one that we picked was an engineer by training and went into the investment banking business, which helped a lot. And then uh, and then also looking for chemistry because this I, I knew from the BOG and and all the interviews that I had done, that this was going to be a stressful, hard process. Were you tempted at all to look for a strategic acquirer? Oh, yeah. No, we definitely we we tried, but we were a little too small to to really attract much in that space. So you were able to go. But so you went out to sort of all comers and, and it sounds yeah. like you 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 consummated a deal uh, yeah. to sell the majority of your shares to a private equity group. Yeah, we ran a process. Um, in that process, we ended up with about 25 uh, conference calls. Roughly about um, a dozen companies came to visit us. So there was some family offices. There was a couple strategic buyers, and there was a bunch of private equity slash venture capital folks who came. We ended up with six offers. And so, and, so that's a pretty public uh, offering. How, how did uh -huh. you... You know, were you worried that that customers or employees might find out? Were you transparent with them? Or? No, we were totally transparent. Um, it was on our one-page plan to recapitalize the business, which everybody had a copy of. We told our vendors and our customers that we were looking to aggressively grow, and we were going to look for a financial partner to help us do that. Interesting, because because recapitalize the company sounds kind of benign. <laughs> you know, it's not mm -hmm. like you know we're we're looking you know we're we're looking to sell our business to the the highest bidder and hit and hit the beach. It, mm -hmm. It's a very different message. Were you intentional about using the term? We're looking to recapitalize the business. Oh, to absolutely. Make it sound we were definitely using that because it was our we it was not our intention to walk away from the business. We thought we were onto something. And we wanted to get somebody, we wanted to use other people's money to do this next uh, rocket boost and for the did, business. How did you get your head around the idea that, I mean, because because folks, you, you know, folks listening will go, okay, so it was a recap, a majority recapitalization, meaning, meaning the private equity company took over the majority of the shares. Right. Um, in a little way, again, the skeptic, the Russian judge in, in, in us all might be sitting there saying, Okay, but but you were really just becoming an employee at that point. How did you? Very kind of, true. Very you, true. What did you that think was about? True. Yeah, um, we knew it was a trade-off, and so one of the elements in our equation for doing it was that we needed to. And I had talked to enough folks that I knew that we had to get enough money in that transaction so that we were okay if we never saw another dime and we got fired. Right. Because many times that's what happens when you when even when you recapitalize the business is. You get sideways with the investor, you're not able to deliver on the results, or maybe they just always plan to get rid of you, but you may end up out on the street 
And so we had a number in our head that we said we had a threshold we had to get over that said, we've been adequately paid for what we built and we're rolling the dice a, a little bit for the future for the experience and hopefully for a second bite of the apple later on. Awesome. So how did you come up with the number in your head? Um, it, w- it was uh, probably really just a, a, the number that said, if things go completely sideways, that I can uh, live comfortably for the rest of my life with a mid-level job, right? That I, I wasn't like completely financial and independent, but enough that I knew my kid's education was taken care of, my house was taken care of, and that we could, uh, we'd be okay, you know, and I'd have enough in a retirement fund that we'd have a nice life. Got it. So you, you were sort of checking off Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like the first right. couple of buck, buckets were, were to yeah, check all but, for. All but, all but maybe the very top one, and maybe yeah. even that, right? But it was somewhere in that range. And so that was, so we had that threshold in the back of our mind. The company was pretty profitable. So that helped us, you know, achieve that pretty easily. And then also the process of having multiple companies bidding, we were able to keep driving the price of the business up because we had created a hot property. Sounds like, so you had six offers. Maybe talk to me about, uh, you know, how you, you reviewed the six, like why did one Mm -hmm. sort of bubble bubble up to the surface or maybe more than one did? Um, More than one did. There was a few where the uh, chemistry of us and the potential investor was just, uh, we we knew we didn't want to work with them. And so that that was easy. Why, what would they they do or say to to make you feel like you you just didn't have good chemistry? Uh, Just that, right? Icky feeling, right? I I, I can't really describe, especially it was the family offices were the really interesting ones were like, well, why in the world would you? (laughs) And I don't know, there was just something there that didn't fit. Um, And then we looked at them from a short-term, long-term perspective. And what I mean by that is we did want to see this thing through. So we wanted somebody who was going to be a a trusted partner in the, the future of the business, but also um, what their reputation was in the marketplace. And how did you vet that? I mean, I guess, cause a lot of, a lot of people are, you know, maybe some people will be fortunate enough to get multiple offers and they'll be in this position where they can look mm-hmm. at the, they can look at the paperwork, but then they need to kind of go beyond that to figure out right. these guys legit. So one firm really stood out to us and in that regard, and their offer was close to the top, but not the, the highest offer. What multiple um, EBITDA were they offering? Uh, it was like seven and a half or eight. I'm trying. I have to do the math in my head backwards, but I think it was somewhere in that range. So it was a good offer, especially at that time. And what proportion the of the business were they were they were they proposing to buy? Seventy five percent. Well, they wanted to buy eighty five percent, I believe, and we fought them down to seventy five percent so that we could carry hold on to twenty five percent, which was their minimum. Uh, the maximum that, that they had to have at least 75% by their uh, fund structure. So we pushed them right to the edge. We we took as much and rolled it as we could. And the and the eight, so how does it work? Because again, people being acquired by a private equity company, um, you know, a lot of 
people have heard the kind of second bite of the apple pitch. So take, take us through a typical PE deal, because I know you've also mm-hmm. been on the other side uh, of the equation. So, I mean, what does it look like? So they're buying 75%, they, eight right. times EBITDA is the overall valuation. They're right. buying 75%. Are you getting a, a, a check day of closing for, for that amount or is it structured in some way? No, nope, you get a check at closing for that amount. Got Done it. deal. And then the twenty five percent, you 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 you're still a shareholder of, correct. Got it. And 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 but it's actually even better than that because um, they they used cash for like half the deal and um, financing for the other half, and so you buy in at the leveraged ratio, and which is a little bit complicated. But simply put. Um, if if let's say that they were buying the business for a million dollars, but they're borrowing 50 percent of the money, then when you bought back in that 25 percent we bought in, you only needed half the cash to do that. So instead of needing two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you only needed one hundred and twenty five thousand to buy 50 percent. But you're not actually putting cash into the business at that point. You're just holding back. Or, or are you? Maybe correct. Well, no, you are. You that you sell for the whole amount, and then you transfer back in the money ah, buying into a new corporation. So that's that's how it works. Got it. But you're kind of almost doubling your money in in that transaction because in, you're using in, in that case because you're getting to use leverage like they are as well, right? They're only putting a certain amount of cash to work, and the rest is financing. And are you personally guaranteeing the debt? No, it's a pretty sweet deal. Who's guaranteeing the debt? The, the private the company. The company guarantees the debt, right? So we had assets, right? We had a warehouse and lots of stuff in it and intellectual property and all that good stuff. Got it. So you're kind of scot-free on the debt or, or their recourses mm-hmm. to the company assets. Exactly. And you know, the, the, at that time, they were about a $3 billion fund. So they were and had been operating for 25 years. I believe we were the 160th company that they bought, something so, like that. So what was the range between the lowest offer of the six and the highest offer in terms of multiple? Well, you have to ask it in a different way, right? Which is where they started, which they were probably 25% apart from the lowest to the highest. And, but then as you go through multiple rounds, they got closer together and people start dropping off. So in other words, the highest didn't really go much higher, but the lowers came up. Yeah. Uh, and the higher ones went up a little bit, but you know they didn't go as far because they were already at the top. So it was hard to press them too much further. Yeah, I'm trying to get a sense. You know, like I think everybody would appreciate it. A bit of a tip on terms of how hard you can push an acquirer from their original offer. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, on a percentage terms, how how much did uh, the top offers move up on a percentage? Probably terms? about ten percent, maybe okay. fifteen, something like that. And then same question, so the lower tranche of offers, how much did they move up? Uh, some of them up, almost doubled. Right. And how do you get them up? I mean, what's, the, what's the talk track like that you would use? Or is that the uh, MA firm doing that? Yeah, I mean, it's, the, it's our, you know, the investment banker is doing it, which basically for the low guys, it's easy. It's like your offer's way out of the park. If you don't put an offer in that's at least bigger than X, you're, you're out of the bidding. And because you don't want to waste their time either. And some say no, nah, and others say, "All right, I'll 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 stay in the game. Let's see what happens." And I think we went through a few rounds, four or five, something like that, of that negotiation. 
and ultimately you consummated this deal, it sounds like. And, yep. and, uh, and then what was life? So walk through life on the other end. This, cause you, you had a 10 year run before yeah. selling it, you know, the last tranche, if you will, maybe right. talk a little bit about that. Well, I was, uh, you know, in one part, it was really fun because you went from worrying about blowing your nest egg to spending other people's money. And, uh, I remember when we when the deal closed, they put several million dollars in our bank account and with the goal that we were going to spend that money to grow the company. And we had always been very conservative about how we spent money. And they're like, you need to spend this money and get us a return, get this, you know, get this ship moving in the next direction. And so that was really kind of fun. Uh, Less fun in some ways was you're not really the boss anymore. You have to start asking for permission for some things. Um, you, you are an employee. And uh, when we uh, when we started, we had, I think it was a three-year employment contract. But, you know, if they terminated you, you would still get paid for the rest of the time. But it ended up that I was it was seven years that I was there as an employee. Um, and then as we got closer to the next exit, it was time for me to get out because I was not going to stay for the next round. So one thing that I think people would be curious about is the difference between an employment agreement and your retention of 25 percent equity. So if, if they had mm -hmm. fired you in the first three years, you would have mm -hmm. you would have been paid out for the rest of the, your employment contract, the rest of the Correct. balance of the three year contract. And you would have then just become a shareholder like a, a non-employee shareholder. Is that is Correct. That Got it. That's correct. You wouldn't have forfeited your shares. Oh, no, no they, there was nothing that they could do that would have me forfeit my shares. And how did you get comfortable with the idea that you were essentially owning 25% of an illiquid asset? Like there was no, there's no public. Well, before I owned 100% of an illiquid asset. Right. So you're very comfortable with it. But yeah, did, it was, did, it, that wasn't really a hard piece. And, you know, we were the hunt. And this particular company that bought us, we were, as I mentioned, we were, you know, uh, the 16th, it would, the deal happened in June. We were the 16th deal they had done that year already. They ended up doing like 30 deals that year. And they were a machine. They, this is what they did. And they were really good at it. They had like 200 employees who uh, they assigned us uh, somebody as our uh, chairman of the board who was like a managing partner who had tons of experience, came from GE, right? So they did lots of things to help us. And so... I felt like the chances of failing were very low. And what I, what I forgot to mention earlier on when we were, to, were talking about the different firms and how did you choose, the thing that they did was they handed me this three ring binder with every, the name, phone number, email address, et cetera, of every company they've ever done a transaction with all the people involved and said, you can call anybody in this book and ask about us. Hmm. And I did, carve out a few days and all I did was call people and I got the same story over and over again. They do what they say they're going to do. They are, you know, honest as a day's long. You can trust them, et cetera. Nobody else came up with that. And so I was like, well, if the price is close and this is who they are, this is a no brainer. Wow. Who's the PE firm? No, I'm dying. Uh, it's, called River, it's called Riverside out of Cleveland. Awesome. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully so we'll get it was, to it. It was really an amazingly fantastic relationship. Uh, we learned so much. They ran, they, it was kind of like another EO. They ran universities. They had all kinds of training tracks. They hired a major. We had coaches. 
uh, you know, all kinds of things that we w hadn't thought of or didn't do before we um, when we were doing it ourselves. Got it. So did was there any liquidity on the 25 percent? Was there any chance that you could have sold nope. back to share? Nope. It, it was only on the sale of the company. Yep. So we were locked in. Got it. OK, so flash forward 2013. You left. Is that right? Uh, to the end of 2013, I had kind of been going through the process of uh, replacing myself for a long time. So I was uh, co-CEO with Wayne for a while, and then Wayne was really interested in the CEO thing, and I wasn't. So I went on to do run sales and do acquisition work. So I helped with integrating the acquisitions. We did a series of acquisitions. Uh, and then when we were getting, you know, gearing up to sell again, so you're not going to do any of those things. So the, I, it was time for me to get out. And so uh, so the, we, I took uh, I exited the company at the beginning of 2013 and just operated as a board member for the rest of the time and basically retired. And did you have did did. The private equity group, Riverside, did they kind of give you a sense of their time frame, how long they wanted to hold it before selling it again? Yeah, I mean, they, they, right from the beginning, it's five to seven year hold time. And what happened was uh, 2008, nine happened in the middle of that cycle, which was a pretty brutal uh, events for the company. The company really got beat up bad during that recession. And so we needed to come back. So that move extended the timeline out a bunch because we wanted to show that we could recover from a recession and, and put the proof into the books, which we did. We recovered very nicely. But nonetheless, it took a little longer than uh, the original time horizon was. And so you're on the on the kind of on the beach or whatever, on the bench, so to speak, yep. uh, after 2013 and they sold in 2017. What were those four years like as a so, minority shareholder, but not an operator anymore? Yeah. So there was um, lots, you know, first personally, a little bit of up and down. Right. Because you were now I had been involved with the business for a long time. And one side of me was like ready for to get out and the other side of me missed it, right? Just the day-to-day -day and being connected and being a founder and all of those things. Um, but I did have a long bucket list. So I started chipping away at the bucket list. I'd always wanted to do an Ironman. I, I, so I retired at 50, which was always kind of in the back of my head. So I started training for an Ironman. We tr uh, lived in Europe for a summer with my kids. We did just all kinds of fun bucket list stuff. And that was great. And that kept me pretty busy for a year or more. And then uh, I started getting bored. I also started running out of friends who could do stuff with me because they were <laughs> getting in trouble. And I, I was missing uh, the business piece. So I started a, a coaching practice where essentially I'm helping uh, local businesses around me uh, do what we did only better and faster, right? That's been, uh, so I ended up filling the hole with going back and, uh, learn and, and taking the methodology that we use to make the business, uh, valuable and then helping other people do that as well. Rich, I, I, you know, you and I have a lot in common in the sense that, um, we both run Ironmans and, and, and built 
built companies and had had these experiences. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I, I personally have reflected on over the last maybe couple of years is is kind of trying to answer the question, what's it all about? What why all mm-hmm. these these achievements? Why is it why what's driving us to you know to always have to tick the box, to always have mm-hmm. to run have you do you know what I'm asking? Do, like, is, yeah, is no, that I, to- part of I your- totally get it. And, and a lot of people ask you, like, you know, really? Why aren't you just relaxing? <laughs> right. Yeah, because clearly but, you, you could at this point probably just kind of take your foot off the gas. Yeah. Is, do, do you reconcile or, or do you struggle with that at all? Uh, no, I don't really struggle with it now, but I definitely did along the way. And um, my business partner, who Wayne, who's really good at um, articulating things, he came up with this acronym that I really loved, which is he said, you know, what we're doing is we're living life and life stands for learning, impact, fun and engagement. And like when you can nail all four of those things together in in whatever you're doing and you just go, does it meet the life check checklist or not? Then then I'm really excited about the future when I'm. Um, you know, in the end, we all have to stand in line in motor vehicles and, you know, those kinds of things. But if most of the the time that you're on this earth, you're living life by that acronym, you're doing OK. Learning, impact, fun, engagement. Mm-hmm. Am I getting that right? Yeah, you got it right. I'm glad you brought up uh, you brought up Wayne. I mean, it, it's a very um, it's very interesting that you guys have remained partners. Well, on, you know, 97 through 2013. How would you characterize your relationship today? Well, we became uh, partners in the coaching practice, so we're still business partners. We. Why do you think that works so well? Um, because we're uh, completely opposite, but yet complementary, right? Um, If you've ever uh, read any of the Gino Wickman stuff, the Rocket Fuel book, you know he, you know, visionary integrator pair. That's us. Got it. Well, it's certainly certainly worked. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, last question. Let's say you and I are are I don't know at a bar in Boston, and and, and I'm thinking of selling my company, mm-hmm. and and you say maybe you ask me a couple of questions, but if I ask you kind of what's what's the one single biggest piece of advice you would have for me? What would you what would you say that is? I'd say read your book. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, no, okay, but, good. But, Let's... but seriously, right? You need to, you know, you have to begin with the end in mind. You need a framework to uh, to be able to articulate the value in your business, uh, be able to prove it, and uh, and be and get really clear about what you want as an outcome at the end. And that's that's not just about the money. But also, what do you want to do with your time and so on? I've had a, I've been in EO since 1999, and I've seen a lot of uh, forum mates sell their businesses and then just go off the tracks because they didn't really think about what comes after. So I'd say, you know, that's a big piece of the puzzle is, you know, make sure you're you're clear about what you're going to be about after because you go from being ruler of the universe to uh, you know, fixing door, broken doorknobs in your house. <laughs> right. If, if you, if you haven't thought this through about what's your next purpose going to be. Well, well said and probably a good place for, for us to end. Rich, if people want to reach out, is there a website? Should they reach sure. out on LinkedIn? What's, what's the best place for them to say? Yeah. That? So the, uh, the website is freescalecoaching.com, all one word. And, uh, 
do you want my phone number too? Whatever you like, whatever you want to sure. give. <laughs> and my, my phone number, well, it's on the website also. Um, it's at 860 uh, 729-0932. Well, give Rich a call. He'd be happy to help. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Rich. It was great to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you too. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.